Welcome. This is audio lecture number six, Developing Social Policy, Beginning to Look at Engaging in Policy Practice. Well, what are some of the factors leading to policy practice? Certainly, the increasing importance of funders and policies as social services have become politicized. In other words, we're not going to enact new social policy. We're not going to adopt new social policy that does not have a demonstrable uh, impact in terms of uh, a benefit to society and also must be cost effective. We also look at the increasing importance of a framework that emphasizes environmental factors and what's the impact on the environment. Basically, we look today at increasing political activism as people begin to struggle with finding solutions to the new problems of both today and what are emerging tomorrow. Well, when we begin to look at developing policy, we ought to follow some basic principles. First are our moral principles, and I want to call your attention to the moral principle of beneficence. Basically, beneficence says we need to put client needs first. It is a moral imperative to help clients. Programs are basically about clients, providing the best possible services to vulnerable groups, to people who are in need. It is important that as part of this, we provide brokerage to negotiate services for specific clients, uh, that we engage in liaison strategies to connect clients to related services, as well as case-based advocacy when clients are denied services and to advocate on their behalf to see that they're provided with what they're needing. So first of all, beneficence. Who are we benefiting? And it's about clients, people in need. A second moral principle is that of social justice and fairness. Basically, policy should be about seeking to reduce inequalities in society. That's the whole focus in this course on social justice, social and economic justice, to make the world more equal to not have such a great disparity between those who have resources and those who don't. Are we a society that, that only the wealthy have health insurance, car insurance, have protections, who can afford to, to send their children to school, good school, good college, who can make then a better day for their children tomorrow? Or do we have a society in which all citizens have access to what we would consider 
as basic services, perhaps health care, as well as fire, police protection, education. So that's really what we're talking about is a principle of justice and fairness. Now, what does fairness need? Basically, fairness suggests that if there must be some or even considerable inequality in society, then it compels us to say, why not seek a society where problems such as poverty are distributed randomly rather than disproportionately located in specific populations? And I think that's an interesting concept because we know there are specific population groups that are most vulnerable to poor health, most vulnerable to high rates of a drug addiction, most vulnerable to school dropout, most vulnerable to being poor. Basically, when we begin to look at policy issues, we can begin to identify a set of recurring dimensions that we've got to pay attention to. So first of all, anytime we're, we're dealing with a policy, one of the first issues that reoccurs is we need to establish a mission. What is the mission of what it is that we're trying to do? Then we have to design a structure of service. How are we going to provide services? How will they be delivered? Locally, purchase of contract, nationally, start a new agency, a bureaucracy. What's the path for resources? How does it get funded? Where does the money coming from? And then what are the services? Or what are we providing? How do we ration scarce resources? First come, first serve? Uh, a triage kind of principle? How do we address community factors? The variation that exists in this country. Different values, different customs. And how do we oversee policy implementation? Well, we first of all, can look at different kinds of agencies that receive funds. One, not-for-profit agencies, or our nonprofits. Very frequently, that's how we look at human service agencies, private nonprofit organizations. But we also have profit-serving organizations. Many of our prisons are really owned and operated by profit-making corporations, uh, as well as uh, services to um, developmental disabilities, uh, to um, halfway houses. Uh, a variety of services increasingly today are run by profit-making concerns, as well as then uh, public agencies. One of the issues we have to look at is how are agencies perceived uh, positively, negatively, good stewards of, of their resources. Uh, those become very important issues that we, we need to look at. 
How can we look at then funding for programs? Certainly one, there are general revenues, tax revenues. And of course, general revenues, uh, scarce commodity, unless if we increase taxes and we're going to pay for something out of general revenues, then what do we cut to provide what we want to do? Or do we increase taxes so we get more general revenues to then provide for more services or a new program? We can also look at uh, a particular uh, tax like a payroll tax in which it gets associated with um, uh, people who employ other people will then pay a tax on their payroll. Um, we tend to resist that because uh, sometimes that's seen as stifling job creation and uh, becomes uh, an issue of, of companies keeping payroll small. Uh, special taxes, um, an excise tax, a luxury tax, uh, a tobacco tax, a gasoline tax. Uh, these are all special taxes. Sometimes we talk about uh, a government imposed fee for instance, you pay a fee for your license plate, a fee to, to visit state parks. There's private philanthropy, charitable giving from the private sector, as well as indirect financing through your taxes, such as tax deductions, tax exemptions, tax credits, and of course, you know, to understand the difference between a tax deduction, a tax exemption, and a tax credit. Of those, the deduction probably is the least desirable in terms of giving you the most money back. Tax credit gives you dollar for dollar credit from your taxes. That's probably the best and somewhere in between, depending on the nature and size of the exemption, uh, kind of becomes second best. How do we determine levels of funds? Certainly, first, a legislature may authorize funds, but then the legislature must appropriate funds. The difference is the upper limit versus the actual amount allocated. One of the great tricks in Congress is that if you wish to be a fiscal conservative, you will vote against the authorization of funds, but you will then vote for the appropriation bill. Uh, and you can say, I voted against the funds because you voted against authorizing the funds. But then you turn around and vote to appropriate the actual amount. Now, some funds are open-ended, such as Medicare, Social Security. We had talked earlier about what kinds of services might be delivered by a program or through a policy. One might be advocacy services. Second, crisis intervention 
referral services, case management, residential, therapeutic, psychoeducational, counseling kind of service. You then have to look at who do you employ? Who provides the services? What kind of, of level of staff are you going to have? Support staff, paraprofessional, what kind of professional? Licensed professionals, non-licensed professionals. And what are some of the, the licensing issues in terms of classified positions, the licensing of tasks or the licensing of titles? We're often confronted also with how to ration our services. One, there may be no rationing. In other words, the service becomes an entitlement. Anyone who wants the service can get it and it must be provided to them. There may be other formal or direct methods. Clearly, we have long used in the history of our provision of services that of the means test. So come with your uh, rent receipts, come with your uh, wage uh, uh, stubs and uh, show me what you bring in and what you expend. Uh, and only if you fall below a certain level, uh, meet the means test, then do we provide assistance. Or it may be diagnostic uh, criteria. Increasingly today, for anyone to receive uh, services, uh, say through public mental health, uh, you have to be diagnosed or fit the classification of severely and persistently mentally ill. Thus, you have to be a person who is not just depressed and seeking uh, mental health uh, therapy, uh, you've got to be a person who has been hospitalized uh, uh, maybe several times and uh, then back and forth uh, into treatment and back into the institution and uh, it goes on for a while and then you become severely and persistently uh, chronically mentally ill and then you can get services or you have to be diagnosed, have a certain kind of DSM uh, diagnosis. Other indirect methods, uh, we can limit a length of, of services. Uh, we can charge fees. Uh, we can put it on a first come, first serve basis. Oftentimes invoke rehabilitation. Uh, if you, uh, you know, get injured in the latter part of the year, you'll go to Voc Rehab and they'll say, well, you qualify for these services, but we don't have any money for your vocational rehabilitation uh, until the next fiscal year because they've spent everything for that year. And so you've got to wait. So you hope if you get an on-the-job injury, you get injured in the first part of the year rather than the last part of the year. Um, uh, there can be where you place facilities, the hours that they're, they're uh, open, in which you can then discourage certain populations from using the service. Or you can reserve for the uh, underserved and put uh, limits, uh, you know, 
We have some programs such as food banks that you've got to be referred uh, perhaps by someone in the community first. You just can't drop in. You need a referral to get the service. So basically then we, we look then at different kinds of services in different ways of rationing them. Um, we can then begin to look at, at different kinds of criteria in terms of uh, are they value-based? Uh, do they provide equality, equity, and social justice? Do they have a strong consumer outcome? Are they efficient? Um, uh, is it a reasonable cost? Uh, uh, are they feasible? Can we deliver it? Uh, is it something we can realistically offer? So these become then some of the issues that we then look at for incorporating into policy or our action that we're going to take in terms of engaging in policy practice. Well, in that process then, we, we need to develop a policy uh, a memo in which we identify the policy issue, we summarize and analyze the issues, we look at available options, we make recommendations, and uh, provide implementation factors. Oftentimes this is seen as the development of a white paper uh, in which we're, we're defining the problem, uh, you know, and it, it may be 10, 15 pages, and it succinctly uh, directs our attention towards uh, what's the, the issue, how is it defined, uh, a summary, uh, an analysis of the issues, uh, you know, what are different options for us of delivering services or solving that problem, uh, and then, you know, here are uh, preferred recommendations and, uh, you know, some issues in terms of implementation. So that's where we first begin by, by kind of developing that policy memo. Then we develop the full range uh, proposal in which you, you then go through the steps uh, that you can, you can understand uh, by looking at uh, your PowerPoint of uh, beginning with establishing a rationale, uh, looking at research findings, and going on to where you gain support and then finally revise the proposal. One of the, the issues in, in implementation of legitimization, of really getting your policy enacted, is to clearly understand power and the nature of uh, power and how it impacts policy enactment. Certainly, one's got to consider ethical issues. One has also got to identify the kinds and sources of external pressures that influence policy. So if you're going to do something legislatively, you know, when do you go to the legislature to advocate for a particular bill? You know, the important point is that you, you really work with legislators early on before the legislative session begins 
when bills are being developed and filed. Typically, a month or so before uh, a legislative session begins is a filing date. All legislation must be filed by that date or it doesn't get considered. So if you want to be considered, you have to make sure you get a bill introduced on or before that filing deadline. Then leadership will then uh, determine uh, where those bills are, are going to be heard. So the next step in the process, they're referred to committees. They can be friendly committees, unfriendly committees. And unless if they get out of the committees, they will never get to the floor of, of the House or Senate at either the state or federal level. So you've got to understand the process because oftentimes if you're waiting until you know we're coming up for a final vote, while that's important, you really don't get any opportunity to shape the process of what you're doing unless if you've been involved far before that particular time period. So in terms of looking at some of these factors and ethical issues, we understand promoting one issue may mean less funds for another to accept less than desired based upon the realities of funding. Uh, do we support an important but unpopular uh, issue where success is unlikely? And, and what kind of tactics do we use? Anytime we, we look at uh, policy practice and we've got to look at how do we develop external pressures who are allies? Who are the special interest groups? Who's going to benefit from the services? Who are the constituents, uh, political party? Um, you know, who, who will benefit from both the manifest as well as the latent goals of the policy? So you look at something like food stamp program and certainly the hungry, those on welfare would benefit but also American agribusiness. So you really get that develop strategies of getting agribusiness people on your side to do something for poor people in that uh, kind of case. When we look at power, basically power is nothing more than than a resource uh, that uh, is to be used to influence the position uh, or activities of others by inducing them to do something that they would not normally have done. Uh, that's power. Uh, power is getting you to do something that you don't want to do or that you would not normally do. So you can have elitist political theory that says power is concentrated in the hands of few uh, or basically powerful economic interests dominate political process. Or pluralistic political theory that's saying it's dispersed and it's favorable for reformers as they can mobilize citizen and interest group support for certain measures. So what kind of power? person-to-person -person power, coercive power, uh, reward power. You do this for me, I'll reward you. Uh, you don't do this uh, for me, coercive power. Uh, if you don't do this, you'll fail the course. Um, that's coercive power. Uh, 
Uh, expertise power is the power of the expert who knows what they're talking about. Uh, legitimation power, those individuals who know how to get legislation passed, who know the legislative process. One of the uh, issues in terms of of looking at great presidents and who could accomplish what. You look at Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was a master, who was responsible for some of the greatest social legislation uh, of, of uh, our, the past century. And uh, part of his uh, great skill was that he had tremendous legitimation power in terms of understanding how bills uh, got uh, past and uh, what the legislative process was. And then charismatic power, uh, the, the leadership of a person who is truly uh, charismatic. Uh, one can then look further at process power, uh, who understands the, the process uh, of uh, what's the level of the conflict, uh, the timing, the pace, the duration, um, who uh, is going to get involved, who's not. Some of the, the broader, um, large picture kinds of issues. And then procedural power really understands uh, how that procedure works, timing the parliamentary tactics, uh, deciding upon the de decision route uh, to follow. Uh, do you defeat, water down the bill? What committees does it get assigned to? Uh, and then last, uh, substantive power of how you influence the content of a proposal, sharpen it, uh, and influence it. Well, those are just some of the factors, and uh, your text will, will certainly uh, further develop, uh, but these are some special issues that I wanted to uh, share with you at this particular time. Thank you for listening.